Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and sing to Him just as we just sang. He is so worthy. He alone's worthy. Christ is worthy of our adoration. Christ is worthy of our worship. Christ is the way. Christ is the truth. Christ is the Savior. Christ is the mighty God who saves. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Well, take your copy of the Word of God. We're not going to go to 1 John yet. I promise you we're going to get back to 1 John. But I've had another passage of Scripture that has been dominating my mind and my heart throughout this week. And so we're going to go there this morning. And that is the book of Galatians chapter number 1. I want to read together with you verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Galatians chapter number 1. I titled the essence of this text quite simply, No Other Gospel. No Other Gospel. Beginning in verse number 6, this is Paul and he's writing to the church in Galatia and he is quite bewildered. And this is what he says beginning in verse number 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, it's as if he's saying, I don't think you quite get this, let me doubly emphasize this. Paul says, and I'm picking back up again, and Verse 8, he says, And if we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him or her or whoever be accursed. Verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you His saints. Amen and amen. There's a fancy term that pops in my mind when I read a section of Scripture like that. That word is wow. I know you think I say it a lot, but it does. I'm like, wow. Wow. It does not get any clearer than the language of Paul in those verses in Galatians chapter number 1. There is no doubt about what Paul is saying. The subject matter is so seriously, eternally serious 
That Paul doesn't soft-pedal his words. He didn't just sort of, you know, well, you know, just sort of... He's not nice about it. (laughs) He's getting direct and to the point. The main idea, the central thrust of that text, verse number 6, down through verse number 9, bleeding into verse 10, the central theme is this. There's no other Gospel, no other euangelion. That's the word in the Greek in the original text. There's no other good news by which you might be or could be and can be saved. That's it. Only the apostolic gospel. That's it. That's it. It is the only hope. For sinners that are condemned under the strong arm of God's justice. And that's every one of us when we're born. It's every one of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only hope for being rescued from the penalty of our sin is Christ our Savior. There's only one gospel. Only one. And so that is the message of Paul. And it's flashing like lightning in a summer thunderstorm. Flashing like lightning, declaring this truth to all those that were gathered in Galatia and all those in Valdosta. Saying there's only one gospel. Now here in these verses, Paul is not explaining the gospel. There's no explanation of the gospel here, but Paul does a brilliant job in the remainder of the book of Galatians explaining the gospel. So there's no doubt in our minds what the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, what it is. But he's getting right to the point. He's getting direct to the issue at hand. He is dealing with a problem that they had in Galatia. And it had him stirred to the core of his spirit. He did not placate the problem that he saw in the church in Galatia. He didn't. You see, Paul is moved with a fiery passion to pointedly proclaim the exclusiveness of the one gospel, the exclusiveness of the only gospel. The fact, well, it's exclusive. That's why it's the only. That's why it's the one. I'm being redundant in my language. But he's proclaiming the exclusive nature of that gospel and then simultaneously at the same time condemning any one and any other gospel. You say, well, that's not nice. You're dealing with truth that is of eternal magnitude. This is not a time to be nice. This is not a time or a season or an issue that bids you sip sweet tea and eat grandma's tea cakes discussing the possibility of another gospel. It's you, you, no, not at all. Paul is, this is the euangelion that rescued Paul who tried to stamp out the name of Christians. He's been saved by it. 
He's passionate about it. He's owned by it. He will not back away from it. There's only one gospel. And so, Paul drops his textual bomb with the force of a million thermonuclear explosions. And and you can't get past it. You can't get past You see, here's the problem. The problem that was going on in Galatia, the problem in Galatia is not unlike the problem in the American church. It's the, the problem they had then is it, the same problem that the American church has today. I think it's a little worse today. What the problem is that there were false brothers mingled in among them. Now, that's not my language. That's not my ideology. That's not my personal theology. That is the language of the Apostle Paul because if you go over to chapter 2 and verse 4, he mentions that they had false brothers among them. Or if you're in the King James, false brethren. It's the same thing. They had these false brothers that had crept in, as Jude would say, they had crept in unnoticed. And they were there with them. These false brothers were self-proclaimed teachers of the truth. They were agents of Satan masquerading as ministers of righteousness. And they were proclaiming another gospel, which is no other gospel, but a false gospel. It's just the doctrines of devils and demons. That's all it is. That's all it is. Let me tell you about these false brothers. False sisters. Let me tell you about them. They, these agents of Satan, they do not carry an identifying card. You don't pull out their wallet or their... Or take it out of the purse and say, here's my identification badge. I'm an agent of Satan. Agent number 666. They don't do that. They don't wear a badge that says, hey, I'm here to damn you. They don't wear t-shirts that say, I'm proud to be a false brother. I'm proud to be a false teacher. They don't do that. Let me tell you about false brothers. They are sincere. And what they think and what they believe and what they teach. But they, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, have swerved from the truth. And that is serious business. You see, they might still affirm enough cardinal biblical orthodoxy to slither right in the door just like their father slithered into the presence of Adam and Eve and so deceived Eve. (laughs) They do. They may affirm 90% of biblical truth but reject 10%, and oh, what a damning 10% they might reject. It's serious. 
It is a serious issue. And the 10% that they reject that becomes such a, an utter damnation upon them usually is a 10% that, re, re, that reflects the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of salvation we find in the gospel and the doctrine of who our Savior is. And it is utterly damning. And so they are teaching things they sincerely believe that are demonically twisted and have fallen away from the faith and they are used by Satan to help. And this is the language of the Apostle Paul. You can go back and check the original Greek. I would encourage you to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, they are used by Paul to help keep the minds of unbelievers blinded so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ, who Paul says is the image of God. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 4. That is the truth. And I will not back away from it. I was pinned to the pew with it 31 years ago. And I will not back away from the truth that the Spirit of God has shown me about my great and mighty Savior who saves. Wow. And so... The great attack of the false brothers then is now, then and now to distort the gospel, the God-centered gospel of grace that is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1 and verse 16. Now in Galatia, some historians have suggested there were as many as 70 versions or perversions of the gospel that was being mingled and passed and circulated out there. Now Paul in Galatians only addresses one of those and that was the issue of the Judaizers who would acknowledge that yes, Jesus is Savior, but then they added to the idea that you had to keep the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, and you had to be circumcised or you could not be a true Christian. That's baloney. And the same old lie of the Judaizers still makes itself available today, though we may not call it circumcision. There are many groups out there that carry the badge of Christ, but they add to it things that are the means to salvation that will not save. The Gospel proclaims, and Paul proclaims, in Galatians and in Romans and in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon, he proclaims in all of his writings, you get the feel, you see the clarity of it, especially a place like Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, that the gospel that saves is a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I don't just say that to say that. I say that because that is the gospel. That's it. Amen. That is it. Now, I would suggest to you that in America, the variety pack of false gospels probably moves beyond 70. But it doesn't matter if it's 70 perversions or 7 perversions. The message of, of Galatians 6 
7, 8, 9, and 10 in chapter 1 is quite clear. There is no other gospel other than the apostolic gospel that will lead you to salvation. There is only one version, Paul's version, which is Christ's version. It's the God-centered version. And all other versions, regardless of the man-made denominational label or non-denominational label that is attached to it, is simply hogwash that will lead you straight to hell. No, I'm not a politically correct pastor. Never will be. Cannot afford to be in this age of religious tolerance and pluralism. In this age that soft pedals sin and minimizes the weight of it, that soft pedals and, and you got preachers that won't even go to the text, they won't even look to the Hebrew and to the Greek to wrestle with what the text even says. They won't even go there, they just simply look at it and it's a deep subject and it's a deep issue even though it's a simple gospel. Men teaching things that they ought not teach. The main truth of verses 6 and 10 is there's no other gospel. Out of that main truth emerges three subordinate truths that I would bring before you this morning. Paul lets us know three things in the midst of his condemnation of other Gospels, of other versions. You see, there's no room to be wrong, folks. Not on the Gospel. You can be wrong about a lot of things. You can be wrong about a lot of different minor theological issues, but you can't be wrong about the Gospel. You cannot be wrong about who Christ is. You cannot be wrong. Because you can be wrong at eternal for eternal consequence. This is why the Apostle is so passionate in his writings. This is not a text to say, <laughs> this is all fun and frivolous. This is serious. This is serious. This is serious. The first of these subordinate truths is simply this. When we look, we see in verses 6 and 7 the, the, the astonishment of Paul. The fact that this is going on has Paul astonished. He's absolutely astonished. Or as the, um, he marvels, as one translation puts it. He's astonished by this. He's astonished by, that, by, by the fact that people are turning from the true gospel to embrace a false one. It's kind of interesting that in the book of Galatians, Paul starts out the book of Galatians in a way that he doesn't normally start his books and letters that he writes. Normally, if you will notice and you look at the letters of Paul, typically Paul will start out with, um, and this is my paraphrase of it, a kind of a, hey, how are you doing? Um, I'm so thankful for you. I love you. I cannot be. I wish I could be there with you. I long to see you. I want to be there with you. He affirms them. He didn't do that in Galatians. But he did do that in one of the most 
troubling churches in the New Testament that in Corinth. You remember Corinth? Corinth had all kinds of sexually immoral issues and problems and disunity and factionalism and all kinds of things that were going on there. Paul starts his letter out to them and all of their problems. He says, I give thanks to my... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. And this is Corinth. Can't deal with a brother that is living in immorality. They can't deal with trying to have unity amongst themselves. They're immature. They're running after preaching personalities rather than being wrapped up in Christ. There's disunity. They can't even function in how to, 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 to rightly partake of the Lord's Supper. And Paul starts out talking to them like that. But when you get to Galatians, Paul doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. In Galatians, Paul says he is thalmazo, astonished, marvels. He's just, he, can't, he can't come up with any other word other than what he's saying right here because he is so taken by the fact that they are so quickly deserting he who he talked about in the verses above that gave himself up for our sins. He can't, he can't imagine that. And it is so grievous and so serious, he offers them no commendation at all. None at all. Wow. He was thalmazo, astonished, struck with great awe and wonder, surprise. Notice in those verses, he, 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 he exposes exactly why he's astonished here. He's astonished. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him. Him who called you. Now you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. They were abandoning the message of the Gospel. They weren't really abandoning Jesus. But what you've got to understand is you cannot disconnect who Jesus is from the message of the Gospel. Because if you change the message of the Gospel, then you change who He is. And you begin to proclaim a Jesus that is not the Jesus of Scripture. You reclaim a Jesus, a Christ that is no Christ at all. You begin to proclaim uh, some sort of, of distorted view that is not right. That is damning. And you must be careful. Wow. To believe a change in the doctrine of salvation is not simply to shift in abstract beliefs. You see, it's to shift from the very hope that is offered. And it is to shift away from Him who called you. The Galatians shifted not in minor theological details, but in their complete doctrinal shift in the understanding of salvation and the role of the Savior. They embraced a false gospel. They rejected Him and embraced an idolatrous concoction of their own hands. Paul goes on and he says that, I am astonished. Here's the second thing I would say about his astonishment. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. They, do you know what they were doing in rejecting Christ? They were rejecting grace. Do you realize Christ is the personification of the grace of God? Titus says, for the grace of God has now appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Christ is the personification of the grace of God. And they were turning from it. That's a big deal. By taking the gospel and adding to and twisting and changing it. That was a major issue and problem. When they were adding the ceremony, for them specifically, they were adding the ceremonial law. And in adding the ceremonial law, they were throwing grace out the door. Because you can't have grace and the law. You, you, not that the law is not important. The ceremonial law is irrelevant. It's fulfilled in Christ. The moral law of God we live out as the result of salvation, but not as the means to salvation, which is what they were doing in Galatia. Now, grace is the essence of the gospel. Your salvation is of grace from A to Z. It's all of grace. You were saved by grace before you were born. You were saved by grace in time. You're sanctified by grace from this day forward. And a hundred billion years from now, you will be glorified in future grace when you see Him. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. If you believe the faith once for all handed to the saints, as Jude would call it, it's all of grace. Grace alone. That's the essence of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It's all of grace. It is, as the Latin phrase says, sola gratia. Grace alone. But they deserted grace. Their flesh deserted grace because humans like to do something. They like to feel that they're doing something to make God pleased with them. So they add to it some sort of work that is not the result of grace, but is the means to grace, which nullifies grace. And that was an issue, a serious issue. A serious issue. Wow. It is by grace you are saved. You see, the gospel is a work of grace. The gospel is, is this. Jesus Christ saves sinners who repent and believe in Him. Repent is a work, repentance is a work of grace. Study your Scriptures. Belief is a work of grace. Study your Scriptures. It's not a work of your own energy. It is a work of grace. It is a gift of grace. And sinners who repent and believe, who experience the work of grace, are saved by grace through that work of grace. Wow. You see, the gospel is not adding something to Jesus. It's Jesus alone. It's grace alone. That's it. That's it. 
Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse number 17. He says, For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. For the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18, he says, referring back up to that transformation and new creation in verse 17. In verse 18, he says, For all of this is from God. You hear me? All of it. Being in Christ. The old passing away, becoming a new creation. It is all the work of God. It is grace. It is grace. So we see the astonishment of Paul and the people turning, but then we see the anathema, the accursed state of those who turn. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, he has to say it twice. Cursed, anathema, cursed are those who teach another gospel. And he says, even, he says, even if we or an angel comes. Because see, he knew that there would be spiritual experiences that people would have. Do you hear me? There are spiritual experiences that people will have that are not necessarily right and true. And they may be sincere in their spiritual experience, but if it takes them away from the Gospel, then it is not of God. I believe that Charles Taze Russell was sincere in his experiences when he thought that he was seeing something new. And all of that resulted in a cult we call the Jehovah's Witnesses. I believe that Joseph Smith was true, sincere and true when he had a vision of the, with the angel Moroni that told him that none of these churches out there should you have anything to do with. And I talked, told him about some golden tablets he wrote. I believe he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. I believe that David Koresh was sincere in the visions and experiences that he had, but it led to the slaughter and murder of many there in Waco, Texas in the 90's. I believe that Jim Jones was sincere when he thought that God had told him that they should drink Kool-Aid laced with poison and they died. Listen to me. I don't care if somebody tells me they have had this great vision and seen ten angels and they tell them something different. I know immediately to walk away from it because my eyes have seen the glory of the only begotten of the Father, Christ the King, and He is the truth. Don't try to bewitch somebody with your little fairy tales. I don't care. I know the truth that saves I know the truth that saves and has saved me. He saved me. He saved me. But we see the anathema. We see that they are cursed. Paul says they're cursed. Not only does he talk about here, he's talking about those who preach the other gospel, but it's not just limited to that. He talks about all who do not love the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22, and he used the same word, anathema, cursed be those who don't love the Lord Jesus, talking about the Jesus of Scripture, not the Jesus of your concoction. He talks about that. This is a serious thing. Paul does not sugarcoat, he does not placate his words. 
He would not be popular in our culture of tolerance. He would not be invited to fill the pulpits of some churches in this seeker-sensitive age. In this age that wants to respect everybody's religious idea, where everybody's religious idea cannot be right. That's it. You hear me? That's it. That's the only confirmation of what's right and wrong. Rightly divided. Now, Peter talks about false teachers in Second Peter chapter number 2. He talks about how they have crept in. Let me, let me read to you what he says about them over here. He talks about false prophets and false teachers. He says in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, but false prophets are also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who, get this, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master, that is the Sovereign who bought them. That is talking about Jesus. Jude says they creep in unawares, denying our only God and Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Guys, I call a spade a spade. I call it like I see it in the Scriptures. And I do not back away from my conviction of wrestling in the Scriptures for 31 years. This isn't just some whim. I have wrestled with God over things that I cannot wrap my mind around and I have been bruised by it and I have submitted to that which I can't fully comprehend because He is God. Yeah. Paul doesn't sugarcoat this. He says, accursed are you. Paul would write in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. And my friend, that is like a peal of great reverberating thunder that shocks you on a summer evening when it shakes your house and it makes you alert. It's there because there are always those amongst the true church whose hearts begin to drift into the way of error. And it's saying, wake up! And come back to the faith that was once for all delivered and handed to the saints. Now, third subordinate truth out of this central theme. We've seen Paul's astonishment. We see the uh, statement of accursed or anathema. And then we see the amazement of the servant of the true gospel. And it's amazing in this sense that he's obviously not like a politician because he's a Christ pleaser, pleaser and not a crowd pleaser. Listen to what Paul said again in verse 10. I'll remind you of verse 10 in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter number 1, Paul said, 
for I am I after he 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 gives this stinging blow. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If he was trying to please man, he would be trying to placate all these people with all their different ideas about the Gospel. Oh now, let's just reason together your diversion away from the Gospel. No! Not! Absolutely not! You see, the reason Paul could write like this was Paul was out to please Christ, not man. Paul wasn't worried about some CNN poll of popularity. Paul was not worried about whether those out in the church or area thought, wow, Paul, that was a good sermon. Paul really didn't care as long as Christ was honored and Christ was glorified. I've never, never, by the grace of God, wanted to try and make the people happy. I want to make my Savior happy. And I can only pray that in making my Savior happy, the people are happy. But it doesn't matter whether there's not a soul in this room that likes me because I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother and his name is Jesus. Ah, he's always with me and He never leaves me nor forsakes me. I don't work for the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't work for some denominational headquarters. I don't work for the deacons. I don't work for the hierarchy of Valdosta Church. I work for God Almighty. Now all I can pray is that our hearts are joined together and centered around God. Now that's the truth. And that's reality. Wow. Now, a true servant, a true pastor, he doesn't want to do anything other than pastor with a passion to please God. That alone. My friend, I would close by asking this. Have you received the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ? For it alone, writes Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, is the power of God for salvation. Or have you embraced some false facsimile? Some concoction of the mind of men that is not reflective of the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Have you? I can't answer that for you. Only you know that. You see, the real gospel is the God-centered gospel of grace. A gospel that calls sinners to repentance. A gospel that calls sinners to faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And I would ask, have you received that gospel alone? And then I would say, fellow Christians, you who have received the true gospel, hear me please. I feel it in my belly like a mother over her children or a father looking over his children. Let no one bewitch you. Let no one bewitch you with their fancy and sophisticated new religious truths. It will not be tolerated. It will not be tolerated under my leadership.
It will not be tolerated. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. And I pray that you will stand for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace be to you. Grace be to every one of you. I'm going to ask everyone's head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as, as Angie comes to the piano and Gary comes to sing, you respond to the truth. And, and, and you will respond. I just pray you respond rightly. So as Gary sings, you respond. If there's some need you need to talk about, wave your hand at me. If there's some need that you want me to be praying about, wave your hand at me. I'll, we'll, we'll figure out what that is. We'll begin a conversation. Whatever the Spirit of God is speaking to you, you respond. In Jesus' name.